Hi, this is the second part of our very first two-part episode. In order for this one to make sense, you should first listen to episode 53. It's called Melinda and Judy. We should also say this episode contains material that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Please use discretion. I vowed on the day that we buried my mom that I would find out who did this to her. And, you know, I lost my entire family because I was saying Clarence did not do this. And I had no support. It was just me and our two, and our two sons. And uh, so I decided, I'm going to find out who did this. This is Melinda Dawson. We left her in our last episode at the sentencing of her husband, Clarence, who had been convicted of killing her mother and raping and assaulting her six-year-old niece. Clarence received two life sentences, and Melinda didn't believe that he could have committed any of the crimes he was sent to prison for. But she wasn't able to convince anyone else in her family. They wouldn't even speak to her. You know, I had no one for uh, emotional support. Uh, I had no one for, to bounce anything off of, definitely. Her mother was dead. Her niece had been assaulted. Her husband was in prison. Melinda thought that the only way she would convince anyone that Clarence had not committed these crimes was to find out who did. And that's exactly what she decided to do. She started by making a list of suspects and then looking into them one by one. She had no training, no money, and absolutely nothing to lose. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Melinda combed through area newspapers, looking for people who had been convicted of sex crimes in the area, and she kept adding to her list. After I, you know, put their name on the suspect list, then I started looking um, where they lived, what kind of charges they've ever had, uh, you know, things like that, and and making sure that I knew what they looked like. And, uh, you know, thank God for the Internet, um, which was pretty in its infancy at the time to try to look up people back at that time. But I got a lot of information from um, the same county that I was fighting, and and they had pictures and they had charges and dockets, court dockets, um, that I pulled together on these people. So the Hicks adoption stuff went on the back burner, obviously. A few years before her mother's murder, Melinda learned that she was one of at least 200 babies who had been illegally adopted from a small clinic in Georgia. They called themselves the Hicks Babies because the doctor who'd sold them to their parents was Dr. Thomas Hicks. The group had started searching for their biological relatives with DNA. The idea was to create a database of DNA samples from both the grown Hicks babies and anyone from the area in Georgia where they had been born. We were doing DNA uh, to see if uh, we could find any matches. I had uh, learned from that experience what DNA can show. I learned from watching um, crime shows and forensic files and just knowing that DNA is the answer to a lot of rapes and murders, um, and it's unrefutable. 
The police had collected lots of evidence from the crime scene at Melinda's mother's home, but only a couple strands of hair had been tested for DNA. And Clarence was not a match. There was no physical evidence whatsoever placing him at the crime scene. But somehow, that wasn't compelling to the jury. But Melinda knew that because only those hairs had been tested, there were more things to test, and that gave her an idea. Melinda set out to secretly collect DNA samples from each person on her list of suspects. Um, The first person on my suspect list, I um, found out where he was hanging out and uh, right around, you know, and during the weekend. So I went on a Friday night um, to one of the local bars in Barberton. I was dressed kind of um, not like I normally dress. I'll put it that way. I I was, um, you know, a little sleazy looking. And uh, I went in, kind of checked out the area and kind of sat down by myself and was watching, you know, him a little bit. And then he got up to play pool and I put a put my quarters on the pool table and he won um, against the other person. And so I was up next. And so we were playing pool and uh, I was kind of flirting with him and, um, you know, just just talking and. Uh, my ultimate goal was to to get a cigarette, but however, um, the barmaid kept coming over and dumping the ashtray. Like every time somebody would put a butt out, she would dump it. And so, okay, I'm thinking it's the beer bottle I got to get, I guess. And uh, he went to the bathroom, and I had a baggie, and I put that beer bottle uh, inside the baggie and left before he got out. And believe me, when I got to my car uh, and locked the doors and was trying, you know, to get out of the parking lot as fast as possible, I was literally terrified and, and thinking to myself, what are you doing? But once she had that first sample, she kept going down the list. Um, once they either went to the bathroom or, you know, went to talk to someone else. I I got either their cigarette butt or their beer glass or a beer bottle and secured it and got the heck out of there. At one point, she even followed a man to a strip club and sort of flirted with him just so she could pull some hair right out of his head. You know, where the girls dance and um, the guys put dollar bills in their garter or whatever, and I had never really experienced anything like that. And so a lot of this was so shocking to me that, you know, I had to really stay focused, but I, um, yes, I I went up to him and we were talking and uh, I just kind of nonchalantly put my hand on the back of his head and kind of raked my fingers down a little bit and uh, got his hair. That's such a bold move. Yeah. Looking back on it now, I yes, that is. 
Baggies of hair and bottles and cigarette butts were piling up in Melinda's refrigerator and freezer. I tried to keep some of the the things that I was doing away from my sons. You know, they were 15 and 12 at the time and and, uh, very, very intelligent. And so I decided I needed to tell them what I was doing because I was storing this DNA evidence in my freezer in my refrigerator. And um, I made sure that they, you know, did not um, handle it or disturb it at all. And that's, that's how they found out what their mom was doing. When you were secretly pulling out hair on people's heads and swiping cigarette butts, did, did anyone in your life say, you know, Melinda... I love you. I, I'm with you. I want, you know, I, I understand this has been traumatizing, but this is, this is nutty stuff. You're, you know, you are not a detective. <laughs> uh, no, uh, be, simply because there was no one to tell me that. I mean, it was literally my sons and myself. You know, I had no one to to bounce any ideas off of. So, yeah, the things that I was doing were out of, you know, out of the world. But somebody had to do something. So I did what I could. While she was doing her own investigation, she was also working with new attorneys to appeal Clarence's conviction. They made a number of arguments about problems with the trial, admission of hearsay, ineffective counsel, inflammatory remarks by the prosecution. When their appeal was denied, they tried to take it to the Ohio Supreme Court, which didn't work either. The attorneys were out of ideas, and the baggies in Melinda's freezer were just sitting there. She didn't know how or where to get them tested. She needed some help. So she contacted Centurion Ministries, which, in spite of the name, is a secular wrongful convictions organization. They suggested she contact a private investigator named Martin Yant. Melinda wrote him an email with the subject line, Curious, and asked if he would speak with her. My life was never the same after that point. You know, he, he was pretty intelligent in his, uh, the way he handled this case. Martin told Melinda about something called a post-conviction action, which uses new information that surfaces after a trial. This is information that could reasonably cause a jury to reach a different verdict. And in order to get some new information, Martin suggested that Melinda try to go talk to her sister. They hadn't spoken in more than three years. When Melinda got to the house, her sister answered the door and immediately turned away. But then she came back. After, you know, that little reunion that we had, and, you know, my niece was now 10 years old, um, we were a family again, you know, and my sister was, was listening to me, and I'm hearing things from her that I wasn't privy to regarding the case, and she was hearing things that she wasn't privy to. So together we were trying to figure this out. They started spending time together, talking about their mother, and for the first time, grieving together. One day, the whole family was at Melinda's house. And um, my son Brandon had, in the garage, had pictures of his dad up on the walls, um, sort of like a shrine, you know, pictures of my mom and pictures of his dad. 
and uh, my niece had noticed um, the pictures, and you know, I told Brandon maybe we should take those down, and she said, you know, I don't think that that his eyes were blue, and um, Clarence's eyes were blue. Didn't she say that she had only seen the the back of his head originally? Yes. Originally, um, during the trial and before the trial, she had said it looked like him. It looked like her Uncle Clarence, but it was dark, and she'd just seen the back of his head and one time when he went to punch her. Um, And that must have been when, when, um, you know, i got to say this is so hard to, to... I mean, there's scenes going through my head right now, but uh, it must have been when, when um, right before she went unconscious, she, she saw a face in the dark. This eyewitness testimony had been the primary evidence against Clarence during his trial. And now, three and a half years later, his niece was saying she didn't think it was him. Melinda brought the investigator, Martin Yant, to hear what her niece had to say. And then um, my niece had, had said that it was not Clarence um, that was there that night. She was just saying what everybody was telling her to say, what everybody was expecting her to say. Do you think it was Uncle Clarence? At first, yeah. At first, yeah. But do you think so today? No. This is the audio from a deposition in May of 2002, in which Melinda's niece formally recanted her testimony. Clarence's lawyers submitted a motion for a new trial. They also submitted a 20-point affidavit describing the pressure Melinda's niece says she'd felt to stick with her initial identification of her uncle. But the prosecution argued that Melinda's niece had only changed her story because she'd been coached. The judge said basically, along with the prosecutors, that I was the one coercing her to say this, and so there was no grounds for a new trial at this point. Melinda was furious, especially because she was the one being accused of coaching her niece. But she says that somehow each roadblock was sort of like a catapult, pushing her to think even harder about who could have committed these crimes. And there was a man on her suspect list she was interested in. She'd already collected his hair, and she also had him on video acting strangely around her mother on an old family wedding video. A young guy, dark hair, around the same height um, as Clarence, uh, the mustache, the build. Um, But what really um, stood, stood out was the fact that he was constantly asking my mom to dance and wanting to, you know, stand by her. And so I said to this friend of my mom's, I said, who is that guy and why is he acting like that? And from that point on, um, she said, this person uh, was very obsessed with your mom. And your mom said to him, you know, I'm old enough to be your mom. I can't date you. And so my thought was that maybe because of her rejection, Um, he looked like a viable suspect. After some digging, Melinda found more reason to be suspicious of this man, including the fact that he'd been evicted after he was caught molesting his landlord's 10-year-old daughter. He had a rape conviction. 
He'd come to Judy's funeral, and people commented that he was acting strangely. When approached by Melinda's investigator, he admitted that he'd been in Judy's neighborhood the night of the murder, and so the police questioned him, and he volunteered to give a DNA sample. All of this was interesting to the judge. He agreed to test this man's DNA against not only the hairs initially collected at the crime scene, but also against all of the previously untested evidence from Melinda's mother's house. This was a huge victory in Melinda's investigation. She was about to have so much more information, but there was a catch. Melinda was going to have to pay for these tests herself. So Melinda and her son started a website, freeclarence.com. They ended up raising $40,000. You know, that that $40,000 is what allowed us to test just about everything in that was included in the crime scene um, evidence DNA. She sent this previously untested evidence to a lab, a pair of underwear, material found under her mother's fingernails. The results were tested against DNA from that man in the video. Not a match. However, the results were also tested against Clarence's DNA. And for the second time, Clarence's DNA was not a match. But the judge said it didn't matter. The case had never hinged on DNA. It was about eyewitness testimony. I, I just couldn't believe it. I was livid. I, I was just, I was in a state of, what is going on? By now, Clarence had been in prison for six years. And, um... On my way to work one morning, I picked up an Akron Beacon Journal, and on the very front page, uh, this name jumped out at me. And it was the name of the woman who lived next door where my niece had went that morning for help. And so I thought, that, that raised some red flags for me. Why um, were they on the front page? Well, um, after her name jumped out at me, I started, you know, I looked at the headline and they were, uh, her and her common-law husband, Earl Mann, were being charged with child rape of their own children. And I said, I had never heard Earl Mann's name before, Um, didn't know that she had a common-law husband, but I knew right at that moment that it was him. Earl Mann was a convicted rapist and had gone missing from the halfway house where he was staying in June of 1998, just five days before Melinda's mother's murder. When you when you get that information you've been searching for so long and hitting these roadblocks, I, do you just go screaming? I mean, I feel like I would just go rushing to the nearest police station and say, "I've got him." How do you how do you control yourself? <laughs> That's the hardest part. Uh, you know, the police wasn't going to help me. The prosecutors definitely was not going to help. And so I started tracking Earl Mann, and it just so happened that I found him at Mansfield Correctional, the same prison that Clarence was being housed. Melinda didn't tell her husband that he was incarcerated with the man she now believed had committed the crimes he was serving time for. I started writing Earl Mann letters um, as a fictitious pen pal and, you know, wanting him to send me a letter back so that I would have his DNA on that envelope from, from you know, licking the, the envelope to shut it. Um, 
I wrote in a total of about five letters. And just I kind never... of saying hi, I heard about your. I mean, what what did the first letter say? Um, something like, hi, my name is, uh, I used uh, a synonym from uh, the attorney at the time. You know, she was, her and I were trying to uh, concoct this letter. And I told him that I was um, like five foot tall and uh, long, dark hair. And I, I saw a picture of him on the um, <laughs> offenders uh, search. And I just wanted, you know, thought he was attractive and I wanted to talk to him and, you know, send him money if he needed any money. So this was uh, kind of like a, this is this. This wasn't a completely above board letter. This is this is a little this is flirting. Yeah. And the lawyer yep. helped you draft it? Yep. <laughs> it must have been so <laughs> uncomfortable to write. It was. I mean, at this point, I guess who cares? You'd do anything. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I knew what was in my heart. She never got a response to any of the five letters. And then, while visiting Clarence at Mansfield Prison, she asked if he knew a guy named Earl Mann. And uh, he said, as a matter of fact, he's sitting right over there behind you. And the first thought I thought was, I need to go to the vending machine. (laughs) Because I had to walk across uh, where he was sitting. And I thought, if I go to the vending machine and come back, I can get a good look at him. Um, And when I did that, and he looked at me... And I looked at him, the coldest uh, chill went down my spine. And the only thing that I could think to do was smile at him because I did not want him to know that I was onto him. You know, he, he knew who I was from, you know, being on the news and being on the shows. Um, so I smiled at him and just went on. And that's when I said, Clarence, you're going to have to get some DNA from him. What did what did Clarence say to you? You know, he at he this probably point, said what I would have said was like, "How how do I do that? You are the expert at this point." <laughs> yeah, well, he's like, "I I got to you know what am I what am I supposed to do?" I said, "A cigarette butt is the best thing, uh, very easy to conceal. Uh, get a cigarette butt." You know, after I asked him, "Does he smoke?" Yeah, he smokes. Okay, so that's you know, and so. Clarence was having um, a moral, um, I guess, epiphany. He was thinking, you know, is it morally right for me to take something from this guy if we don't even know he's actually, you know, the person who did it? And I said, look, he is the person that did it. Just get the DNA. For a few weeks, Clarence tried to figure out how to do it. It was risky. He could get caught by the prison guards or by Earl Mann. But one day, he walked into a common area, and there was Earl Mann smoking a cigarette. And uh, Earl Mann had an empty ashtray and put his cigarette butt out in it. And as soon as he walked away, Clarence picked it up with a um, tissue, a clean tissue, put it in a baggie, and then hid it in his uh, Bible for two weeks to help flatten it. And then he wrapped it in paper and sent it out to his attorney as a letter. 
The day after Clarence got the cigarette butt, Earl Mann attacked another inmate with a lock inside of a sock and was moved to another prison. And so had Clarence not gotten that cigarette butt that day, that opportunity would have been lost. Clarence's attorneys sent the cigarette butt to the same lab that had tested the crime scene DNA. It was a private lab, so anybody could send material for testing. An Earl Man cigarette butt was a perfect match. And I was thinking, we have an ace in our pocket. And then the reality that this was actually the person who put their hands on my mom and my niece and did what he did, now I had a face. And it was hard. It was very hard. Next, Melinda sought the assistance of the Ohio Innocence Project, and together they presented the case to the Ohio Attorney General, Jim Petro. Petro looked at the case and decided to speak out in defense of Clarence, a convicted murderer. The Attorney General's office ordered an official DNA test using more specific DNA markers, and those results confirmed the DNA from the crime scene matched the DNA of Earl Mann. And so, um, ultimately, on December 15th, 2005, um, we were armed with this new evidence, this new DNA testing that also matched Earl Mann, um, and Jim Petro and I were getting ready to do a um, press conference at his office in Columbus, and we got word that the Summit County Prosecutor's Office were holding their own press conference. And what they said at this press conference was they were immediately dropping all charges against Clarence Elkins and um, calling for his release from the prison immediately. And that charges were, were um, forthcoming on Earl Mann. And um, it was just like the biggest one-ton brick came off of me uh, immediately. It was like I could breathe again. It was, um, I cried and I, um, I was so happy for Clarence. I, and I was so happy for my, my sons. You know, this, this was so hard on them to, to have lost their grandmother and then their dad was being, you know, called a murderer and a rapist, and I I was so happy. Melinda and her whole family, including her sister and her niece, picked Clarence up that very day, December 15, 2005. It had been seven and a half years. Earl Mann later pled guilty to Judy Johnson's murder and the rape, assault, and attempted murder of Melinda's niece. He took a plea deal and was sentenced to 55 years in prison. He won't be eligible for parole until he's 92. Today, Melinda continues to be outspoken about wrongful convictions. She was instrumental in getting Ohio Senate Bill 262 passed, which makes provisions for DNA to be tested even after a conviction. Since his exoneration in 2005, Clarence and Melinda have gotten divorced. Melinda told us simply, it's a lot to come back from. I have three grandchildren, and uh, both of my sons are married. 
and we have a new grandbaby on the way this month. And so life goes on, right? And we miss everything about my mom, and and uh, I'm working so hard to make sure that nobody forgets her because she was uh, an awesome, awesome mother. Melinda is finally resuming the search for her biological mother that she started more than 20 years ago. In 2014, she organized a group of Hicks babies to travel together to Ducktown, Tennessee, to have their cheeks swabbed. They weren't far from McKaysville, Georgia, where the Hicks Community Clinic was, and the part of the country where many of their birth mothers lived, and maybe still do. They tried to get as many people from the area as possible to submit their own DNA for testing. And Melinda tells us that she just got word, 18 years after losing one mother, there's a chance she's about to meet her other one. I have dreamed about this ever since I was told at the year, you know, at the age of seven, right? And uh, adopted kids have, you know, this grandiose thought about their um, long lost family and and uh, then you grow up and you kind of uh, you know get out of that fantasy world and so for me um, this is like a full circle coming together for my life I have lived with so many loose ends and uh, in limbo for so long that yes of course this is the greatest um, that I could ever ask for and on the other hand you know, no one will ever take the place of my my mother, my mother who raised me. No one would ever take her place, and I know that no one would ever try. What do you think your mother would say if she could see you now? <laughs> um, you know, really, all I want her to say is thank you, you know, good job, not know, you know, praise me and just I wanted I want her to be able to to be in peace and that was, you know, my main objective. I just felt like she was not at rest and uh if she could say I'm good now, that'd be that'd be worth it. Criminal is produced by Lauren Spohr, Nadia Wilson, and me. Audio mixed by Rob Byers. Alice Wilder is our intern. Julian Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of Criminal. You can see them at our website, thisiscriminal.com. And learn all about our fall tour, which we're right in the middle of. And we're still headed to Minneapolis, Iowa City, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Toronto. We'll have all new stories told live and some surprises. We'd love to see you. Criminal is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. Radiotopia from PRX is supported by the Knight Foundation and MailChimp, celebrating creativity, chaos, and teamwork. And thanks to AdCirc for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.